from New York, this is Democracy Now! I renew my invitation to implore the Lord for peace for the beloved Ukrainian people who have been suffering the horror of war for six months. I hope that concrete steps will be taken to bring an end to the war and to avert the risk of a nuclear disaster at Zaporizhia. As Pope Francis calls for peace in Ukraine after six months of war, we'll speak with Anatole Levin of the Quincy Institute, who says the time for a settlement to end the war is now, before tens of thousands more die and Ukraine has suffered still greater harm. Then to the fight for reproductive rights, as four more states, Texas, Tennessee, Idaho, and Oklahoma, enact new bans on abortion. At least one in three women in the United States have now lost access to abortion in their states since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. So how extreme are these MAGA Republicans? Just take a look what happened since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. In red states, after red state, there's a race to pass the most restrictive abortion limitations imaginable, even without exception for rape or incest. But these MAGA Republicans won't stop there. They want a national ban. We'll speak with the head of NARAL Pro-Choice America and with a Planned Parenthood doctor in Texas. Doctors there face life in prison and a $100,000 fine if they perform abortions. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Ukraine, the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant was cut off from the national power grid Thursday after fighting between Russian and Ukrainian forces sparked fires that destroyed a transmission line. Without a source of outside power, the plant's automated system switched to an emergency backup, a last line of defense against nuclear meltdown. Zaporizhia is Europe's largest nuclear power station, with six reactors and thousands of tons of highly radioactive materials stored on site. On Thursday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Russia's put the whole world at risk of a major nuclear disaster. Diesel generators were immediately activated to provide energy to the station itself, to support it after the shutdown. The world must understand what a threat this is. If the diesel generators had not turned on, if the automation and our station staff had not reacted after the blackout, then we would have already been forced to overcome the consequences of the radiation accident. Russia has put Ukraine and all Europeans in a situation one step away from from a radiation disaster. The latest fighting around the nuclear plant comes as the United Nations is negotiating with Russia for access to the site. International Atomic Energy Agency Director General Rafael Grossi told France 24 television Thursday he expects a team of inspectors to reach Zaporizhia within days. We need to be there. We need to be there soon. Um, uh, Kyiv accepts it. Moscow accepts it. We need to go. And we are going to be there hopefully very, very soon. Is very soon days or weeks? Days. 
The United States launched a series of attacks inside Syria this week, targeting what the Pentagon described as Iranian proxies. U.S. Central Command reports that on Wednesday, U.S. helicopter gunships killed up to three, quote, suspected Iran-backed militants, unquote, after two bases housing U.S. troops in northeastern Syria came under rocket fire. A day earlier, U.S. warplanes struck near Deir Azur in the oil-rich region along Syria's eastern border with Iraq. The Pentagon says President Biden Biden ordered the airstrikes to target fighters linked to Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Congress has not formally authorized U.S. military action in Syria. And last month, about 60 percent of House Democrats voted to end the U.S. military's role in Syria. In Bangladesh, thousands of Rohingya Muslims have staged protests in refugee camps to mark five years since Burmese soldiers began a campaign of ethnic cleansing and genocide against their community. The U.N. reports as many as 10,000 Rohingya were killed by Burmese forces during the 2017 pogroms, though some estimates put the death toll at more than twice that number. Another 730,000 Rohingya were forced to flee Burma. On Thursday, protesters in a sprawling refugee camp in Cox's Bazar said they're ready to be repatriated, but only if they're guaranteed security and Burmese citizenship. Today, we are holding a demonstration because in 2017, the Burmese army killed our people in a genocide. They killed my husband and others. The military raped us. Then they killed our children, throwing them into fires and snatching them from the laps of mothers. We are now ready to go back to Burma, but our demand is that we must get our citizenship rights. If they agree, then we are ready to go back. Bangladesh is not our soil. We don't want to stay here. If we go, we will not stand camps in Burma. We want to go straight to our own homes. Here in New York, environmental groups are warning United Nations talks aimed at protecting the world's oceans are on the brink of failure. This week, diplomats convened at the U.N.'s headquarters for a final round of negotiations on a new treaty to protect biodiversity in international waters. Greenpeace says a handful of mostly rich countries, including the United States and Canada, have derailed progress on the talks, including a plan to establish marine protected areas spanning 30 percent of the world's ocean. In a statement, Greenpeace said, quote, it now looks like protecting 30 percent of the world's oceans by 2030 will be impossible. Scientists say this is the absolute minimum necessary to protect the oceans, and failure at these talks will jeopardize the livelihoods and food security of billions, unquote. Peru is suing Spanish oil firm Repsol for $4.5 billion over a massive oil spill that fouled beaches off the coast of Lima in January when an underwater oil pipeline leaked nearly 12,000 barrels of oil into the Pacific Ocean. Repsol has denied responsibility for the spill, which Peruvian President Pedro Castillo described as one of the biggest ecocides ever on our coasts and seas, unquote. Locals continue to demand justice. We have been enormously affected by the oil spill, just like the traditional fishermen at the port, which the company Repsol doesn't want to recognize. And they said the only direct effect is on the rights of traditional fishermen. But we are all connected in a chain. We lived off and bought products from the Chiang port. Since the oil spill, we haven't been able to get fish, and people don't consume products from the port. 
In North Dakota, a state court has blocked an anti-abortion trigger law just before it was set to take effect today. On Thursday, a judge granted a preliminary injunction against the legislation, which makes it a felony to perform an abortion with limited exceptions in cases of rape, incest or medical emergency. Meanwhile, in Texas, an anti-abortion trigger law went into effect Thursday, making it a felony to perform an abortion punishable by a $100,000 fine and a to life in prison, a similar trigger law with no exceptions for rape, incest or fatal fetal anomalies also took effect in Tennessee. In South Carolina, Republican State Representative Neil Collins recently said he's reconsidering his support of his state's so-called fetal heartbeat bill after learning how the law imperiled the life of one of his constituents. Last week, Collins described how he learned from a doctor about a 19-year-old who was denied abortion care for her unviable fetus and sent home from a South Carolina hospital because the new law required her to wait until a heartbeat could no longer be detected in the fetus. The doctor told me at that point there's a 50% chance, well, first, she's going to pass this fetus in the toilet. She's going to have to deal with that on her own. There's a 50% chance, greater than 50% chance that she's going to lose her uterus. There's a 10% chance that she will develop sepsis and herself die. That weighs on me. I voted for that bill. These are affecting people. South Carolina State Representative Collins was among three South Carolina Republicans who abstained from a committee vote on a new bill that would ban nearly all abortions. That bill faces a debate by the full South Carolina House next Wednesday. A federal appeals court has ruled against an Arkansas law banning gender-affirming medical care for transgender children. On Thursday, a three-judge panel on the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled a temporary injunction against the law should remain in effect while legal challenges proceed. Last year, the ACLU sued to block the Arkansas bill on behalf of four transgender youth and their families, as well as a pair of doctors who provide care to trans youth. In immigration news, the Biden administration's turning the Obama-era program DACA—that's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals—into a federal regulation, a move aimed at protecting it from more legal challenges. The rule is scheduled to take effect October 31st. DACA has shielded hundreds of thousands of immigrants who were brought to the U.S. as children from deportation and granted them work permits. Several Republican-led states have led lawsuits attempting to gut DACA, arguing the program's illegal. Last year, a federal federal judge in Texas blocked new DACA applications. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals is expected to issue an opinion on a challenge to that ruling later this year. A federal judge has set a noon deadline today for the Justice Department to release parts of the affidavit used by the FBI to justify its search of former President Trump's Florida residence earlier this month at Mar-a-Lago. It's not yet known how much of the affidavit will be redacted, but the document's likely to contain clues to how the FBI established probable cause in its search of his resort, where agents recovered 11 sets of classified documents, many of them marked top secret. Fox News host Tucker Carlson is set to be deposed today in a lawsuit brought by the voting machine company at the center of Republicans' false claims about the stolen so-called 2020 election. Dominion Voting Systems is seeking $1.6 billion from Fox News, alleging the network's hosts defamed the company by repeatedly promoting baseless conspiracy theories that its voting machines were used to steal votes from Donald Trump.
Other prominent Fox News hosts facing depositions include Sean Hannity, Lou Dobbs, Janine Pirro and Steve Ducey. In labor news, workers at a Chipotle restaurant in Lansing, Michigan, have voted to form a union, making it the first successful unionization campaign at the fast food chain. Workers have been demanding higher wages and better schedules. The Lansing store first filed for a union election in July. That same month, a Chipotle in Augusta, Maine, was permanently closed after workers tried to unionize. A company spokesperson said Chipotle was, quote, disappointed by the Lansing vote. Meanwhile, the National Labor Relations Board has filed a new complaint against Starbucks, accusing the coffee giant of illegally withholding wage raises and benefits from thousands of workers involved in union efforts. The complaint seeks full back pay for the workers and would require CEO Howard Schultz to record a video admitting his company's illegal actions. Starbucks faces dozens of other unfair labor practice charges over its massive retaliation campaign against union organizers. Workers at more than 230 Starbucks stores have voted to join Starbucks Workers Union, uh, Starbucks Workers United, since last December. And Qatar has deported dozens of migrant workers who recently led a protest denouncing unpaid wages. Many of them were from Bangladesh, India and Nepal and worked for the Albandri Engineering and Electro, and Electro Watt Company, which holds multi-million dollar contracts in Doha. Workers said they hadn't been paid for at least six months' worth of labor. British human rights advocate Mustafa Kadri recently spoke with migrant workers in South Asia who report they're still owed unpaid wages from jobs in Cutter as it prepares to host the World Cup. Many of them suffer from work-related disabilities. Speaking to victims of forced labour in Qatar, I've been shocked by the stories that I've heard. IFA, Qatar and its partners have failed their human rights responsibilities to respect workers' basic rights and dignity at work and also profiting out of an exploitative labour system. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, we look at the war in Ukraine six months after the Russian invasion. Stay with us. Colored Punk by Cocteau Twins. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, it was six months ago this week when Russian forces invaded Ukraine. 
while Pope Francis and others mark the anniversary with calls for peace, there are few signs from the capitals of Ukraine and Russia or in Washington that an agreement to end the war is near. On Thursday, Russian President Vladimir Putin signed a decree to add 137,000 more troops to Russia's armed forces. On Wednesday, as Ukrainians marked Independence Day, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky vowed to take back all land seized by Russia since 2014, including Crimea. Meanwhile, the Biden administration announced this week a new $3 billion military aid package for Ukraine to boost its long-term military power. We go now to Anatole Levin, senior fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. His latest piece is just out. It's headlined, Six Months After Russian Invasion, A Bloody Stalemate, A Struggle for Peace. Anatole, welcome back to Democracy Now! Why don't you start off by just laying out what you think has happened over the six months since Russia invaded Ukraine and what needs to happen? Well, it's, it's pretty clear that militarily the war has turned into a stalemate. And uh, that has been due, of course, to heroic Ukrainian resistance, Western help, Russian military failures. But I think something that we also need to look at is the way in which military technology has changed recently. Um, almost a bit like the First World War, the power of the defensive, particularly in urban areas, has greatly increased compared to the offensive. Because if you look at um, the history of great, you know, sweeping military victories going back to 1939, uh, they were achieved with tanks and backed up by aircraft, above all. Now, what we've seen in Ukraine is that uh, handheld anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles used by the Ukrainians have caused colossal casualties to Russian armour, helicopters, ground attack aircraft, and have basically fought the Russians to a standstill. Of course, you know, Russia has taken some land, but you know, not nearly what they had planned and hoped to do. Uh, and it now looks very unlikely to me that Russia can uh, make sweeping new gains, as long as the West goes on supplying Ukraine. But of course, on the other hand, if the Ukrainians try to launch massive offensives to regain land, they may well find the same factors working against them. Uh, so that although I think both sides can make certain gains, Ukraine could reconquer Kherson, Russia might be able to take the whole of the Donbass. It, it looks to me as if an outright victory for both sides is highly unlikely. And so... We are essentially in a situation, if that's correct, where either, I mean, once again, a little bit like the First World War, the war will just drag on and on and on with, of course, heavy casualties on both sides, massive damage to Ukraine, and also massive damage to the world economy um, and to inflation and energy supplies in the West. Uh, or um, we have to attempt uh, at least at first, uh, a ceasefire, um, beginning with a, a ceasefire in the region around the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, of course, and then try to use that as the basis for negotiations towards a peace settlement. It, it doesn't seem to me that we would gain very much more, or we have a chance of gaining very much more, you know, if we do this years down the line um, than if we try to do this now.
And Anatoly, and I wanted to ask you, uh, you mentioned the failures of, uh, of uh, Russia to be able to have a quick victory, but there's also been an enormous failure, it seems to me, of the West in being able to use uh, sanctions as a means to force Russia to uh, uh, to uh, stop its uh, military, uh, its military incursion invasion in the Ukraine. Uh, Europe is facing uh, energy prices as 10 times what they were a year ago. And, and, and as we're heading now into the fall and the winter, uh, what do you make of uh, the 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 pronouncements by President Biden that the sanctions uh, unprecedented in history would force uh, Russia uh, to uh, to relent? Well, that has just not proved the case. And indeed, I mean, as various people have pointed out, it's not easy to see why people thought this would work when sanctions have not worked against much, much weaker states, haven't worked against Cuba, haven't worked against Iran, haven't worked against North Korea, didn't work against Iraq in the 1990s. I mean, Russia is obviously a much stronger state and has uh, obviously, I mean, enormous amounts of energy and raw materials to export. Uh, and as you've said, I mean, this has led to tremendous and worsening economic damage for the West. And then on top of that, of course, uh, not that this is a direct result of sanctions, but in part because of difficulties of paying for Russian grain, um, you have the effect on global food supplies and uh, uh, global food prices. And that has been made worse in recent months by uh, climate change, by heat waves in India, in Western Europe, now in China. Uh, agricultural yields in Western Europe are estimated to be down this year by more than 15% uh, as a result of the impact of these heat waves. So the other thing that the war is producing is the threat of um, starvation in certain parts of the world and also of deep political instability. So, um, you know, the, the economic damage has been from this war has been to, to all sides, of course, most of all, uh, to um, to Ukraine and its population. And I wanted to ask you also, when you mentioned the stalemate that is uh, has been evident now for uh, several weeks, uh, there has not been a rising call uh, for ceasefire. Uh, what do you? What is your sense of the United States' position on a ceasefire? Does the the Biden administration want one, uh, or does it prefer to continue to have the Ukrainian people uh, basically be cannon fodder to continue to weaken uh, Russia? Uh, does Ukraine want a ceasefire, and does uh, Russia want ceasefire? Well, to start with the Ukrainian government, um, it clearly does not want a ceasefire uh, at the moment uh, because, um, well, partly they still think that they can regain a lot of territory. Um, you know, the key test is whether, in fact, they can do that. Uh, but also because um, there are deep divisions within the Ukrainian government. Previously, at least, President Zelensky appeared to be in favor of some kind of peace settlement. But he is also under tremendous pressure from his own hardliners uh, in his government and in the military. And so more recently, he has been making much harder line uh, 
statements. Um, the, the Russian government does not seem at present interested in a ceasefire. Russia also, it seems, thinks that it can gain at least some more territory, uh, though I am told that if Russia can conquer the whole of the Donbass region, which is independence it has recognized, then Russia might favor a ceasefire because Russian casualties have been enormous and Russian progress on the ground uh, for months now has been minimal. Uh, the Biden administration, of course, is basically saying it's all up to the Ukrainians, that essentially America doesn't have a, a say uh, in trying to bring about a ceasefire or peace settlement. But uh, in my view, that is a very foolish thing to say, because, I mean, obviously, if uh, America is giving massive aid to Ukraine and running enormous risks for the American economy and the world economy and for climate change, then, and American citizens are suffering as a result economically, then that, by definition, means that America has a, not just a moral right, but a, a duty to its own citizens uh, to play a part in any peace process. Anatoly, even I wanted to ask you about what's happening at Zaporizhia. The uh, largest nuclear power plant in all of Europe is in Ukraine. On Thursday, President Volodymyr Zelensky accused Russia of putting the whole world at risk of a major nuclear disaster after the Russian-occupied nuclear plant was cut off the power grid Thursday. Ukraine and Russia have accused each other of attacking the plant in recent weeks. This is President Zelensky. Diesel generators were immediately activated to provide energy to the station itself, to support it after the shutdown. The world must understand what a threat this is. If the diesel generators had not turned on, if the automation and our station staff had not reacted after the blackout, then we would have already been forced to overcome the consequences of the radiation accident. Russia has put Ukraine and all Europeans in a situation one step away from from a radiation disaster. Can you talk about this and the threat of a nuclear meltdown here? I mean, we should comment that the Ukrainian crew, I believe, at the plant is still there. They're just being—they're uh, just occupied uh, by Russia right now. Um, and also what this means uh, in the whole energy context uh, and— um, could you see this leading being the main force that could lead to a ceasefire? I think it certainly could could play a role uh, because the I, I think what we need to focus on is, I mean, obviously, Russia is basically to blame for the situation by invading Ukraine and occupying the plant. Uh, I have to say, it doesn't make any sense to me to think that Russia is deliberately shelling the plant because the plant is in Russian-occupied territory. Why would they do that? Um, its electricity also supplies, um, strangely enough, uh, both the territories occupied by Russia and the territory held by Ukraine. But I think the, the point is, without either, you know, saying that Ukraine is deliberately shelling the plant, the plant is very close to the front line between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, and, you know, with uh, on a front line with shells and rockets flying around, that obviously endangers the plant. Uh, now, I mean, two things should happen. One, 
which, however, is not wanted by Ukraine or Russia, is that the, it should simply be shut down. Well, plants should be shut down. It shouldn't be operating. Um, but that would, of course, cut off electricity to um, most of the Russian-occupied areas and a large part of Ukraine, uh, which would obviously hurt population and shut down industry. But the other thing that should happen uh, is that both sides should agree now to a ceasefire in the region around the plant, the Zaporizhia region. I mean, not a ceasefire, obviously, along the whole of the line, but a, a ceasefire extensive enough to ensure the safety of the plant. That is the first thing. Now, if that could be used as the first step towards a general ceasefire, well, that would be very good. But the first thing, of course, is to ensure the, the, the safety of the, of the nuclear plant. And Anatole Levin, I wanted to ask you about uh, uh, the broader issue of, uh, from the, the perspective of the media in the United States and the U.S. government, we're constantly being bombarded by uh, 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 information and news to shape the narrative that uh, the key enemies of the West right now are, uh, are uh, China and, uh, and Russia. Uh, as belligerent powers. But uh, there was an interesting article by Jeffrey Sachs, the Columbia University professor, uh, this week, uh, challenging that narrative and basically saying that what we're seeing and that the Ukrainian war is a reflection of that is a continued insistence of the United States and uh, Europe to be the dominant powers in the world at a time when really power is shifting to the global south. And Sachs mentions that the BRICS nations, uh, Brazil, uh, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, now have a greater GDP, uh, 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 gross domestic product combined, than do the G7 nations uh, the, that have been basically running th uh, the political and economic affairs of the planet now for so long. And he says that what is happening here is that the global South is not going along with the narrative when it comes to uh, the, the, the battle between Russia and Ukraine. I'm wondering your perspective on uh, all of these nations of the global South uh, that are not rallying uh, as the United States would like to the cause of the Ukrainian people. Well, I think the global South is, is ambivalent. Uh, most countries did vote against Russia, uh, vote to condemn the invasion. Uh, certainly, you know, uh, almost no countries have recognized the Russian annexation of Crimea. So there is, you know, definite feeling against Russia. Uh, but yes, I mean, there is also a widespread feeling that um, uh, American policy did help to cause the war uh, by this endless expansion of American power and American insistence that the rest of the world, you know, follow its orders on key issues. And that, of course, is, is why even countries that have condemned the Russian invasion have not joined in sanctions uh, against Russia. Um, but I've just been reading a very good biography of Putin by, by Philip Short, and in his conclusion, he states the whole case basically very simply. He said, you know, America is determined to lead the world, and Russia is determined not to be led. But that should not in itself turn Russia into an enemy of the West in general, nor indeed should China's claim to Taiwan turn China into an enemy 
uh, of the West. Uh, you know, these are issues which have to be managed and negotiated. I mean, in the case of, of Ukraine, I have to say, I mean, ha having worked, uh, you know, in, in the former colonial world, having studied as a historian, what's happening in, in Ukraine for me is, is very much one of these post-colonial struggles over territory and identity, you know, which we have seen in so many parts of the world, in India, in Pakistan, in Myanmar, you know, in, in Africa. Um, it did not have to become uh, a battle between Russia and the West if both sides had um, behaved with more uh, circumspection um, and more you know, restraint and and obviously respect for the interests of the Ukrainian people. Uh, but I, I think, you, you know, so much of, of what Russia has done against the West since the war began, um, uh, it's been very damaging, you know, the cutoff of energy supplies and so forth. But that was inevitable uh, if the West was going to side completely with Ukraine and impose massive economic sanctions on Russia. I mean, what, what on earth did we expect? Anatoly, and I wanted to shift focus in the last few minutes we have with you from Ukraine to Afghanistan. This, mark, this month marks one year since the return of the Taliban to power and withdrawal of U.S. troops, ending what was the longest war in U.S. history. Afghanistan facing today a humanitarian crisis. According to the U.N., 95 percent of Afghans are going hungry. Meanwhile, the United States is continuing to refuse to unfreeze $7 billion of foreign assets held by Afghanistan's central bank on U.S. soil. You're with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, which held a recent symposium on Afghanistan and the U.S. withdrawal. Your thoughts on this other anniversary today? Well, I mean, the, the whole business in Afghanistan was a tragedy and a disaster, um, from which, by the way, there were, you know, no easy exits and there were and are no solutions. I've been arguing for many years that, you know, there is no solution to the endless problems of Afghanistan. There is only better or worse management. <clears throat> and also basic humanitarian duty. I mean, especially in the case of Afghanistan, given all the promises we made to the Afghan people, I think we do have a duty and responsibility to provide food aid uh, to make sure that, you know, at least the population does not starve to death. But of course, um, especially after the location of um, al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri in, in Kabul under Tal Taliban protection, and given, you know, Taliban uh, policies towards women, uh, it's, it, it, it isn't possible, I think, to, you know, resume any kind of normal relations with the, uh, the Taliban at present or give them massive aid. The only problem, of course, is that in Afghanistan, as always, um, there are people even worse than the Taliban and much more threatening to the West in the form of, of ISIS, the Islamic State of Khorasan, uh, who are fighting bitterly against the Taliban and have carried out terrible terrorist attacks uh, against um, minority, religious minority uh, targets and, and universities and educational establishments in Afghanistan and are also, of course, which are real promoters of international terrorism. So, you know, we also don't want the Taliban to fall and, God forbid, ISIS to take over. So, um, you know, there, there, is a, there, there is a bind, but uh, at least, you know, preventing 
starvation in Afghanistan is still, I think, our duty and perhaps could be at some stage the basis for um, a new relationship with the Taliban one day, but not today. And Anatole Levin, we only have about a minute left in this segment, but I wanted to ask you how you assess the world response and the U.S. response to the humanitarian crises in uh, uh, Ukraine versus uh, Afghanistan. Uh, obviously, the uh, Ukrainian refugees were welcomed in the U.S., while the United States had re- uh, had allowed some Afghan refugees to come in, but many were blocked, including those who had worked with the occupation uh, from attaining permanent refugee status. So how do you assess the, uh, in a comparison between the response to Ukraine and the response to Afghanistan? Well, I mean, the response to Ukraine has obviously been, and Ukrainian refugees has been vastly more generous. Um, now, uh, not you know, g- giving asylum to people who work for the United States and Britain is obviously disgraceful. It's 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 dishonourable. Uh, I have to say though that when it comes to you know much larger numbers of refugees from Afghanistan, um, you know a- as we have seen uh, from you know previous uh, generations of, of migrants to the West, um, there has been you know often real problems with integration and therefore. You know, uh, in even in the first generation, let alone the second generation, with um, some of these people, you know, who have come to the West as refugees, then turning to extremism and terrorism. So I'm afraid that you know, simply saying that we must accept anyone who wants to leave Afghanistan and can uh, is, you, you know, uh, not a, a solution. Um, you know, Ukrainians like Poles and others, uh, you know, are much, much easier, frankly, to integrate and much more likely to be successful in Western societies. I mean, that sounds harsh, but I'm afraid it is a fact. Well, Anatole Levin, I want to thank you for being with us. Senior fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, speaking to us from Leicester, England. Coming up, we look at the fight for reproductive rights in the United States as four more states, Texas, Tennessee, Idaho, and Oklahoma, enact new bans on abortion. At least one in three women in the United States have now lost access to abortion in their own state since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Stay with us. Beautiful bird, I said, digging her somber mood. The fascists are some heavy dudes. They don't really give a damn about life. They just don't want a woman to control her body or have the right to choose. But baby, that ain't nothing. They just want a male finger on the button. Because if you say war, they will send them to die by the score. Aborting mission should be your volition. But if Suda and Thomas have their way, You'll be standing in line, unable to get welfare, while they'll be out hunting and fishing. It has always been around. It will always have a niche. But they'll make it a privilege, not a right, accessible only to the rich. Hey, La Femme Fatale by Diggable Planets. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We spend the rest of the hour looking at how millions of pregnant people in the United States have now lost access to abortion in their states since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. The Washington Post reports this includes at least one in three women. 
Meanwhile, more restrictions are being implemented in state after state. This week alone, anti-abortion trigger laws went into effect in Texas, Tennessee and Idaho. And on Saturday, Oklahoma will increase penalties for doctors who perform illegal abortions for pregnant people to include a $100,000 fine and up to 10 years in prison. The Texas anti-abortion trigger law that went into effect Thursday makes it a felony to perform an abortion also punishable by a $100,000 fine and up to life in prison. Tennessee's similar trigger law has no exceptions for rape, incest or fatal fetal anomalies. Meanwhile, a trigger law set to take effect today in North Dakota was blocked Thursday in state court when a judge granted a preliminary injunction against the measure that makes it a felony to perform an abortion with limited exceptions for rape, incest or medical emergency. Abortion access is now a key issue in the 2022 midterm elections. Many states report a surge in women registering to vote. This is President Biden kicking off his midterm campaigning Thursday night in Maryland. So how extreme are these MAGA Republicans? Just take a look what happened since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. In red states, after red state, there was a race to pass the most restrictive abortion limitations imaginable, even without exception for rape or incest. But these MAGA Republicans won't stop there. They want a national ban. They want to pass a legislative national ban in the Congress. If the MAGA Republicans win control of the Congress, it won't matter where you live. Women won't have the right to choose anywhere. Anywhere. Let me tell you something. If they take it back and they try and pass it, I will veto it. This comes as Arizona's Republican Senate nominee, far-right venture capitalist Blake Masters, is now downplaying his support for a fetal personhood law as he seeks to challenge incumbent Democratic Senator Mark Kelly in November. This week, Masters' campaign quietly overhauled his website, scrubbing it of many of his extreme anti-abortion views. Last week, South Carolina Republican state rep Neil Collins said he's reconsidering his support of his state's so-called fetal heartbeat bill after hearing how it had led to one of his constituents being denied an abortion care for her unviable fetus because it required her to wait until a heartbeat could no longer be detected. Collins spoke before the South Carolina House Judiciary Committee. A 19-year-old girl appeared at the ER. She was 15 weeks pregnant. Her water broke. And the, the fetus was unviable. The attorneys told the doctors that because of the fetal heartbeat bill, because that 15-week-old had a heartbeat, the doctors could not extract. There's a 50% chance, greater than 50% chance, that she's going to lose her uterus. There's a 10% chance that she will develop sepsis and herself die. That weighs on me. I voted for that bill. State Representative Collins was one of three Republicans who abstained from a vote on the measure, which passed along party lines in the committee and is set for a floor debate on Wednesday. For more, we're joined by two guests. In Texas, Dr. Bhavik Kumar is with us, medical director of primary and trans care at Planned Parenthood Gulf Coast in Houston, co-chair of the Committee to Protect Healthcare's Reproductive Freedom Task Force. And in Philadelphia, uh, Minnie Timaraju is with us. Uh, she is the president of NARA 
overall pro-choice America. We welcome you to Democracy Now! I should add, uh, Minnie Tamaraju, that um, today is also the 102nd anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. Uh, when you look at what's happening around this country, I mean, the fact that women, new women voters are surging all over this country now, it looks like it has changed the prospects for the midterm elections. Can you talk about what has taken place just this week with trigger ban after trigger ban? Thank you so much for having me, Amy. And, you know, the trigger bans are outrageous. They're horrifying. It's important to note, however, in many of these states, as these trigger bans are coming into place, uh, these are states that already passed really horrific restrictions, including Texas, where my colleague uh, Dr. Kumar is. I mean, look, we've already had a six-week ban that was left to stand by the Supreme Court with a vigilante enforcement mechanism and outrageous fines and penalties in Texas since last year. So uh, Texans have been living under a draconian nightmare for a very long time. Now, you add the other states you mentioned, you know, Idaho, Oklahoma, Tennessee. Uh, it, it's small comfort that, you know, we have um, some limited restrictions now by the courts. It's good news that the court struck the North Dakota trigger ban, uh, or at least put, held an, uh, put an injunction. But I want to note something about North Dakota and the dystopian situation in this country. The one abortion clinic in North Dakota that existed has already crossed lines and moved over to Minnesota because they understand they can't functionally provide health care in the state of North Dakota with everything going on. So even though the court uh, put an injunction on that trigger ban, there is no abortion access in North Dakota. And that is the landscape we're talking about. We're talking about women and pregnant people having to travel hundreds of thousands of miles to get access to care, working moms, People with kids already, most folks who seek abortion care already have children, having to figure out how to get child care, how to get gas, how to get transportation, how to take some days off work, just to have access to what should be a basic fundamental human right that they've had guaranteed for almost 50 years in this country. So it's nothing short of horrific. Um, and I know my colleague's going to be able to tell you a lot more about what's happening on the ground. Uh, well, Mindy Timurashu, I wanted to ask you about some of the high-profile cases that have already uh, uh, come to public light. Uh, some of them are really uh, absolutely chilling. Yeah. There was a Baton Rouge, Louisiana resident who was 10 weeks pregnant, was denied an abortion at a Louisiana hospital, even though an ultrasound showed her fetus was developing without a skull. Uh, the condition known as a crania does not appear on a list of accepted conditions for an abortion in Louisiana. In, in Florida, there was a 16-year-old orphan uh, uh, ordered uh, to carry her pregnancy to term after she petitioned the court for the right to have an abortion, testifying that she was, quote, not ready to have a baby. But a three-judge panel denied the request ruling that the girl had not established she was sufficiently mature to decide whether to terminate her pregnancy. Uh, these cases, as, as they become more and more uh, uh, apparent to the public, what do you expect uh, to happen? Uh, so I think two major two major point responses I have to this, uh, and thank you for asking this question. One, advocates have been talking about these cases for decades to Republican extremists in these states. So it's uh, you played the clip 
of the South Carolina legislator acting completely shocked at the consequences of his actions, supporting a really problematic bill and a ban. This is what happens with abortion bans. And we've seen decades of targeted restrictions against abortion providers throughout many, many states in this country that have already put abortion care out of reach for the majority of people in rural areas, people of color, people without means, because of federal bans on um, funding for abortion. So it's really important to understand these horrific stories that are coming to public light have already been happening in many parts of the country. The other point I want to make is this is why bans Total bans are problematic, but this is also why just passing bans and then adding exceptions doesn't work, right? You just talked about how a three-judge panel had to make a determination uh, of a life-saving procedure for a mother and her her situation, right? Do you want three-judge panels and hospital administrators making decisions in life-and-death cases? It's an absolutely intolerable way to manage reproductive health care in this country. And considering how devastating and dangerous pregnancy is, it's the most dangerous time for most women in their life is pregnancy. Do we really need to be waiting weeks upon weeks and asking legislators, panels, you know, administrators to make these life-saving decisions? So these cases are increasingly horrific. What you saw a few weeks ago in Kansas is an indication of what the American public thinks of these bans. And when asked directly how they feel about it, they are unequivocally clear. They do not want government in their business. They do not want these bans and restrictions, and they're ready to fight back. Dr. Bhavik Kumar, you're in Texas and you're a doctor. Um, the trigger law that just went into effect um, makes it a crime for you to perform an abortion. You face a $100,000 uh, fine and life in prison. Your response? Yeah, this is now the third abortion ban since uh, the overturning of Dobbs. And uh, as many said, Texas has been in a post-row world for almost a year now with Senate Bill 8. So practically on the ground, this doesn't change anything. Abortion has not been accessible in Texas for some time now, and it continues to be inaccessible, which means people that are trying to access care, whether it's abortion, folks that are experiencing a miscarriage, folks with a wanted pregnancy that have had something go wrong, or even folks with an ectopic pregnancy may not be able to get the care that they need. And we're seeing the same thing play out in a number of other states. What's important to note here with this trigger law, like you said, it has penalties of life in prison, fines of $100,000, is that adds another boulder, another weight onto healthcare providers' shoulders as they try to navigate what they can and can't do, think about who they need to contact, whether it's attorneys in a hospital or an emergency room, um, contacting an ethics committee. And as a healthcare provider, as a physician, when I'm thinking about taking care of a patient, the last thing I should be thinking about is which attorney I need to ask, which law I need to consider, what the penalties may be as I go through options with a patient. What I've seen over the last seven years of providing abortion care in Texas is that politics has found its way into my exam room, into my health center. It's, you know, soaked its way into everything that I do as a health care provider. And it's really unfair because people are suffering. We've heard a couple of stories from South Carolina, from Ohio and other places in Louisiana about what's happened to some folks. But these are stories that we hear every single day. There are hundreds, if not thousands of people that are experiencing the same things. And I'm worried that things will only continue to get worse if we don't do anything and vote these folks out. And Dr. Kumar, you, you mentioned uh, having to consult lawyers. So with, with these new, uh, uh, new restrictions, uh, what is considered aiding and abetting an abortion? Is that legally clear yet? 
Absolutely not. Again, these laws are passed by politicians who are not healthcare providers. So whether it's aiding and abetting, whether it's these vague exceptions for medical emergencies, these are not well defined. And we're seeing that play out where there's chaos and there's confusion. And there's also this chilling effect where folks, whether they're providing information like abortion funds or physicians or nurses that are trying to take care of patients when it comes to medical emergencies, it is not well defined. So clinics and hospitals are instead left to figure out what they can and can't do and figure out how much risk they want to take. And again, that's simply unfair. There are people trying to get care, trying to get information, and they're sort of in this limbo of not sure what to do, what to ask, what they can and can't say. And these things are starting to vary by clinic, by state. And again, it's really unfair because people are suffering in the meantime. So, Dr. Bhavakumar, be very specific. I mean, you are uh, with Planned Parenthood in Houston, in Texas. What does it look like? What does Texas look like now when it comes to trying to access reproductive care? How many clinics have closed? I mean, what do you do? Did you perform abortions before and you don't now? Yeah, absolutely. When we were able to, we would provide abortion care. So before Senate Bill 8 went into effect, which is about a year ago, we could provide abortion care up to the legal limit. So the vast majority of folks that we would see uh, qualified for an abortion here in the state, closer to where they live. Of course, there were a number of restrictions that were already on the books. And so the situation wasn't ideal. Folks still had to wait at least 24 hours, go through a number of other hurdles to get the care that they need. Folks weren't allowed to use their insurance. But since Senate Bill 8 went into effect, and of course, in the last two months with now three abortion bans, today, I'm essentially not allowed to provide any abortion care to anybody if there's a viable pregnancy. And the same is true for folks that present to an emergency room. Now, we are able to see folks before an abortion. So if they need an ultrasound, if they need any kind of blood work, we can provide that. And then for folks that have had an abortion in another state, we can still see them for follow-up care. It's important to note that folks are traveling out of state, and that's what's happening in Texas and in about 16 states where there's some abortion ban in effect. And folks are traveling sometimes hundreds, if not thousands of miles, which means time off of work, finding child care, navigating the multiple jobs that they may have. Um, and of course, there are some folks that aren't able to travel. I've seen folks that are undocumented and say, I can't risk, you know, somebody finding out my documentation status or my family being deported. I've seen folks that are tethered to an abusive partner who tell me it's been difficult for me to even get to the clinic here today, which is about five, 10 miles away. I can't travel to another state. And sometimes I don't know what happens to these folks. Um, they're either able to make it to another state to get the care they need, or they're forced to stay pregnant. And that's simply unfair, unjust. They're making sound decisions about what's best for them. They know they can't be pregnant. They know that it's not the right time for them to parent. And instead, they're left with no other option. And that's been a reality for almost a year now in Texas. And Dr. Kumar, since the overturning of Roe v. Wade and in Texas, SB 8, uh, what's the climate been like in terms of harassment uh, uh, anti by anti-abortion activists and, and, and potential violence uh, to uh, to health care providers? Yeah, the harassment and, and, quite frankly, the terrorism that we see among anti-abortion folks has been there for some time. And, of course, it's it's remained there. Even though we're not providing abortion care now in Texas, we still have protesters harassing staff, harassing patients that are trying to access um, other care, whether it's family planning care, such as contraception or STI testing, or just coming in for breast and cervical cancer screenings. They're harassing everybody that comes into our clinic. It's also important to note that these terrorists that are outside of our clinic are very 
closely linked to the politicians that are passing these anti-abortion laws. It's one movement that is not rooted in the well-being of, of our patients and the well-being of Texans and folks trying to access reproductive care. And it has to stop. We've been saying this for some time. We've been telling politicians about the harms that will happen if we pass these laws. You know, it's exhausting to, as a physician to tell people that aren't medical professionals about these harms, about what these, you know, violent acts are doing, whether it's outright violence against people or it's violence in the form of these racist and classist laws. But they haven't listened. And unfortunately, they're seeing the consequences of these things play out now. So, again, I really, really want to call on people to take action. We've had some success in Kansas, and I'm hoping we'll see the same success in November. Um, I also wanted to very quickly ask you, Dr. Bhavak Kumar, uh, about the federal appeals court ruling against an Arkansas law banning gender-affirming medical care for transgender children. Three-judge panel uh, ruling temporary injunction against the law that the law should um, uh, remain in effect while legal challenges proceed. The whole issue of trans care and how it links to reproductive care. Yeah, thank you for asking that question. I think there are uh, a lot of similarities between the two. I'm an abortion provider. I also provide trans care. And so it's very clear to me that the playbook that we saw with abortion care, where it was one law, it was one group that was targeted, in this case, minors, it was one state, and slowly, slowly, we saw an overturning of everybody's rights. And here we are with Roe overturned. Abortion is inaccessible in so many states. And I can see a similar pattern with trans care, where we have Alabama that's passed a law. We have Arkansas now. We have courts deciding what can and can't happen. At the end of the day, we know that this care is safe. We know that, and I say this as a physician who provides this care, who's trained in providing this care, this trans care is life-saving. It reduces people's ability. It reduces people's uh, suicidality. It saves people's lives. It's important to have people be able to access this care, especially minors. And what we're seeing with the opposition is that they're targeting folks in southern states and targeting the most vulnerable among us. In this case, it's children. And so, again, this is another issue that's very closely linked to anti-abortion movements where folks that support uh, anti-abortion laws also support these anti-trans laws. At the end of the day, for me as a physician, these decisions should be left between me, my patients. We should use science and medicine and counsel our patients on what's best for them and let them decide what they want to do with their lives and their bodies and uphold their dignity and humanity. And uh, I'd like to bring Mini Tamaraju back into the conversation. Uh, the, uh, the recent decision, I think it was on Wednesday, by a federal judge in Idaho uh, yeah. uh, blocking portions of a trigger ban on abortion. Could you talk about that? Sure. Uh, in Idaho, the Department of Justice brought suit uh, on the provision, on EMTALA, the emergency care provision piece. Uh, and look, in Idaho, the court uh, did say, look, you ha the ban is still in place, which is deeply problematic. But a good step is that now, uh, if a patient, again— has to prove it, and the doctor has to prove it, so it's not ideal. But if a patient can prove uh, that they have an emergency, they can have access in an emergency room to abortion care. Uh, for all the reasons Dr. Kumar just laid out, uh, this is still very problematic, but it's an important first step because this is an example of how the Biden administration is taking a strong stance for reproductive freedom and reproductive rights and trying to use all the tools in their toolbox, particularly the DOJ, to intervene in some of these most problematic cases. 
Well, I want to thank you for being with us. There's so much to talk about it, and we will continue to. Minnie Timaraju is president of NARAL Pro-Choice America. She's speaking to us from Philadelphia. And Dr. Bhavik Kumar is the medical director of primary and trans care at Planned Parenthood Gulf Coast in Houston. Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for a people and culture manager. You can learn more and apply at democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Stay safe.